every person is basically a supercomputer. So anytime you see a person doing something that, for instance, a seven-year-old could do, that's probably a good sign that that thing will be automated and that that person will be freed up to do something else. The thing I can be sure of is that you will definitely see a race to automate those kinds of tasks and that people will be freed up to do more interesting, hopefully, more complex tasks. Images of the future commonly include powerful robots that can serve our every need. Robots today are a long way from those visions, however. They generally perform highly repetitive tasks, often involving little variation and in very structured environments. The vast majority, as this episode's guest would say, are blind and dumb. Recent advances in artificial intelligence, however, are changing this and expanding the boundaries of what robots can do. Welcome to the Managing the Future of Work podcast from Harvard Business School. I'm your host, Bill Kerr. Today I'm speaking with Derek Pridmore, co-founder and CEO of Ocero, a company that makes brains for robots. Derek will tell us about how machine learning techniques can revolutionize robotics and what his company is doing to turn this potential into reality. Welcome, Derek. Thanks for having me. Derek, you left a top-notch job in finance because you're excited about this potential area of technology. Tell us about what dazzled you. I guess I'd start by saying I consider myself to be a technologist originally. I studied physics down the road at MIT and was always interested in that. Sci-fi geek really went into finance as a function of happenstance and, and was excited to move back in that direction. I worked at a venture fund, invested in technology startups, and see this as the future. And one of those technology startups was DeepMind. Mm -hmm. So that was a very transformative venture. Tell us a little bit just about DeepMind and, and what you saw through that investment. To be honest, when, when we invested, it was just three guys in an idea. They painted a compelling picture of where we could take AI, and it made sense to me. We met the company in 2010. It's a London-based AI startup started by Demis Asabis, Shane Legg, and Mustafa Suleiman. The ideas were to take inspiration from the brain, and not just deep learning or reinforcement learning, but really anything that they could glean, essentially ideas from neuroscience, and try to solve intelligence, which was not a good business pitch, but they had already mapped out a pretty interesting roadmap around proving functionality that we know as a species exists in the brain and using games uh, to do that. And this ultimately had a very successful acquisition by Google. Mm -hmm. On the other side, what do you think Google was seeing in this technology, or how would Google want to absorb it into the company? Google looked at some of the demos that DeepMind had put together, which were certainly cutting-edge state-of-the-art for the time, and saw that they would have broad-based applicability, whether it's doing image search or ultimately some of the stuff they did around data center optimization. Google has a ton of problems that are very hard that need data to solve them. You know, that's what machine learning is good at. So I think that sort of pragmatic, functionality-focused approach made the acquisition obvious. But then turns out that the founders of Google consider Google from day one to have been an AI company. And when they met Demis, the quote was, these guys are hell-bent on building AI. We have to get them. Okay. <laughs> it was a match of deep chemistry there, yeah. deep reinforcement learning. Could you say a little bit more about what part of the human brain or activity is this mimicking, and how does it help the computer or the robot learn? I'll caveat that, you know, originally trained as a physicist and got a lot of brain damage from doing finance, but I, I work with some very smart machine learning engineers, so I, I hope they will be okay with my explanation. Deep learning is loosely inspired on the way the brain works. The brain is a, is a bunch of connections of neurons, and the firing of one affects the other, and the more neuron fires, its propensity to fire again changes. And that's more or less how deep learning is designed to work. You take very high-dimensional input, like a picture, and you essentially compress it down to a low-dimensional input, like a one or a zero. And you have to do that in a kind of fuzzy way. 
And you do it by showing this network of connections picture after picture and then updating the weights of that graph to sort of be able to better predict the outputs that you want. Another way of thinking about it is it's a function approximation. So deep learning generally falls under the heading of supervised learning. For instance, how you play a game, what's the sequence of actions that you take in order to, to win the game. That would be a reinforcement learning problem. So the idea is you might need to take many thousands of actions before something happens, you get a reward, and you need to decide how all of those actions in the past contributed to the win. And if you can do this enough times with enough data, yeah. there are algorithms that will, in certain scenarios, be able to learn how to control a game. So you can put these two things together, and then you can hand those things off to a reinforcement learning-based controller that can take those as inputs and still do these sequential actions it needs to plan to figure out how to achieve a goal. The interesting thing about deep reinforcement learning is you don't do these things separately. You actually have to train them at the same time. That was sort of the breakthrough, was that you could learn both your perceptual understanding and your control policy at the very same time. Which in reality is how humans learn. Yep. Learning to walk, learning to observe the world, the mm -hmm. one to two year olds as they're kind of making their way around are trying to learn what are the various mm -hmm. objects out there and also trying and failing at early steps and walking. Mm -hmm. in, in you're bumping way. into things, you're falling down, exactly. You mentioned Osero's early days. You were searching around for the right product space. Tell us about the things that you considered and then how you ultimately came to focus on robotics. Deep reinforcement learning has potential to enable products in a wide variety of areas. And so we looked at a couple different things. I would say in retrospect, we started a company the way you shouldn't. You, you should start with a product. You should probably have customers. We started with a technology that we knew could be applied to a lot of different areas. Specifically, our idea was to use some of the early techniques, essentially demos around deep reinforcement learning and playing games to do just that. The idea was to use them to debug games. So rather than have an Atari agent play Atari and strictly try to run up the score, you could augment its reward function and, and give it essentially points for crashing the game. And so if you could build a system that would do that, you could replace a lot of the manual gameplay that happens while you're testing games. It actually slows the process down. So right now when people play games, they will go to countries like India or sometimes Canada and they'll have people play games. So that was one, game debugging. Another was ad optimization. And the idea there was ad optimization is in some sense a reinforcement learning problem, meaning it's a delayed reward problem. You do something up front and you expect something to happen many steps later, but it's also a sequential decision-making problem, meaning the true state of a person's brain is affected by everything that happens to them. Even something as simple as changing the order in which I show you ads or posts, for instance, on Facebook, affects how you react to them. And social psychologists have known about this effect for a long time. So it makes sense to try to take those things into, into account. So we, we looked at doing that, that sort of stuff. And then, you know, robotics was, was the other big one. I mean, robots are essentially sold today without, without a brain, and we could talk more about that. But to usefully apply them to new domains, you need to be able to do closed-loop control, meaning take perceptual inputs from a camera and then control the robot. That's the kind of thing that deep learning is very good at. And then there's also this control aspect, which is yeah. sort of similar to uh, reinforcement learning. All right. So you then take this in, in the robotic space, you start with warehouse piece picking. Can you tell us a little bit about that space, what attracted you to it, and what are your products doing in there right now? Once we had determined that robotics was a very interesting space because there was high demand, there weren't a lot of players in the space, and also there were no big companies who had a sort of proprietary advantage around data, for instance. We started looking for the easiest use cases we could find, to be honest. We wanted to sell a product, and we want it to be something that works and that doesn't put a huge technical burden on us. I mean, we're definitely doing deep tech, and we have a really smart team who do things like deep reinforcement learning, 
But having said that, we want to make the problem as simple as possible. So we went out and started looking at all the use cases. And you can imagine lots of things from very precise manufacturing of cell phone components to things like warehouse piece picking. And the reason why we settled in on that was simply it's easier. You, you need to pick an object up from a bin and move it to another bin and pack it. And the, the idea, by the way, is that this is all of the infrastructure that backs up e-commerce. So when you order something on a website, sitting in a warehouse somewhere, you order a couple things, they're in disparate parts of the warehouse. Someone needs to go get them, put them in one box and ship it to you. A lot of that process is manual still today, but it's very rapidly becoming automated in order to make the entire process efficient. And also because a lot of markets have labor shortages. I think Japan, for instance, is a very key market for us. They have a population decline of around 1% a year, which is 5,000 workers a day. And there's a relentless pressure also to push prices down. And so the, the more we can automate or, or lower prices through less labor input, that makes all of our packages from Amazon a bit cheaper. Yep, that's right. The, the more we can shift from a mode where we're paying people every day to run around uh, to one where we buy one machine that sort of sorts things and puts them together, then, then that reduces prices. You said this is a little bit easier than creating that cell phone component, but mm-hmm. it also sounds like this has been a, a very challenging space. Amazon has had sort of picking contests and other stuff through the years to help with this particular final stage of the warehouse automation. What is it that connects with deep reinforcement learning here? What, what can Osera do that the other products could not have done? To a certain extent, it's not just a sorrow. There, there are a lot of companies who are, who are working in this space. It's a function of the technology progressing to the point where it's possible. So sometime around 2017, which is roughly when Amazon decided to stop having the uh, Amazon Picking Challenge, we saw that the deep learning models that we were using for perception had reached a point where they were accurate enough and had enough scale to them, meaning they could label and identify a wide enough variety of products to be commercially useful. At that point, it went from being a very hard theoretical machine learning problem to a pretty hard engineering problem, but a tractable one. Continue on Amazon, they purchased Kiva about seven years ago, which helps move the devices closer to the human agents that are picking them up and putting them in the packages. Yet Amazon overall, some estimates have said less than one out of five of their warehouses are deeply automated. Mm -hmm. What is slowing that adoption process down? Uh, Many things. Um, I think Amazon has a particular problem. So taking a few steps back, there are lots of different kinds of materials handling facilities and lots of different kinds of shipping. So you might be shipping just boxes or you might be, you know, fulfilling um, very specific products like pills or cosmetics. That range of products has uh, varying levels of difficulty. Amazon has the worst version of it in that they do everything. So it's not surprising that they've only automated a, a small section of their problem. The other issue Amazon has is that Again, because they're doing so much at such a large scale, they have the seasonality problem where a lot of their demand is, is during basically the holiday season. And so they have to spin up new facilities. And that's actually what Kiva was designed for. That system is what you might call reverse compatible, meaning you can go into a big open warehouse and very quickly turn it into a facility that is moving things around. Now, having said that, it's not necessarily the most efficient warehouse. So Kiva specifically, they're very small sort of maybe six inch high circular robots that roll around and they'll roll under a shelf, pick it up and move an entire shelf to a person. If you just sort of think as a physicist and you're trying to design an efficient system, that's not exactly the one you would design because if I need to get a little package of tooth floss 
off of a shelf, the most energetically efficient way to do that is not to bring an entire shelf of products to me and then grab the floss. But it is efficient in the sense that it allows you to spin up a new facility as rapidly as possible. One of the things we spend time thinking about is if you could redesign the entire matter routing infrastructure of the world to be energetically efficient, how would you do it? That's one of the reasons why, as a company, when we started to sell our product, we focused in on rack storage systems where the products are pretty much the only thing that move. So they're stored in very small bins that have just the product in it. Um, And the idea is that magic would be, if I want that floss, it just sort of flies off the shelf and comes to me. So the only thing that moves is the floss, not the entire shelf. And these rack storage systems are pretty much as close as you can get to that. But again, Amazon has a very wide range of problems, and the technology is only just progress to the point where you can start to automate not just the movement of big things like the racks, but also the individual piece picking. So they're just getting started. And an important part of your work is that in the warehouse setting, there will be many, many types of products, you know, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 types of products. And also that the precision can be okay. Like you don't have to be as precise as you would need to be in some manufacturing applications. You can do well with a little bit less. Talk to us a little bit just about some of the technical challenges of, of needing to pick up 10,000 products or 20,000 products. How do you handle that level of complexity or that variation? Mm-hmm. It's not just the variation in the products, but also the packaging type. One of the things you learn really quickly as you sort of focus in on, on your customer base and you start looking at this piece picking problem is that if you were looking at it from just a machine learning perspective or almost adversarially packaged, so they're clear things wrapped in clear things wrapped they're just in making foil. it hard on you yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly they're just making it as hard as they can so and so that was one of the challenges when we started the company we've had opportunities to sort of make decisions about whether we want to do something in software or hardware and our bet has always been that we could do it in software because the machine learning algorithms will be powerful enough so an example of that is when you're looking at clear items you could try to build a special sensor that does that or you could say look let's do it the way people do let's just use color cameras and, and maybe we use two of them so that's one of the, the challenges we had to um, sort of face. And, and again, we've done that with a lot of deep learning. So that's the, that's the primary technique we use on the vision side. The range of objects, which you mentioned as well, is also challenging. So being able to build models that can identify huge numbers of objects is essentially, the, you know, it's the bread and butter of, of deep learning in some sense. But at the same time, most of the techniques that are published academically are built on data sets that essentially have hundreds or thousands of objects. They don't have tens of thousands or millions. That's been an area of ongoing research. We do our own research internally at at Osara. We also solve some of the challenges with with engineering. So how do you think about applying your software, your techniques at the device level or in the cloud? Or do you mix between those? Most of these decisions are driven by product requirements, meaning you want to, you certainly have to be able to control the robot and identify the range of products that's necessary. Part of that means you can't have much latency, so you need to be right next to the robot because you're communicating over an internet connection that's like a LAN. And you know even hundreds of milliseconds can translate into centimeters of robot movement, so you can't be in the cloud coming down to the edge. But having said that, the models that we deploy there are actually quite computationally intensive to create. So it can take days of training across a cluster of GPUs to get one of these deep learning models to the point where it's accurate enough to be deployed. So we actually have a hybrid system where we have cloud infrastructure where we can send data up to the cloud, combine it with our existing data, train these models, sometimes over days, but then we deploy them to the edge and they're running in what's called inference mode on the machine. So that's one of the distinctions between 
in deep learning um, that I think may be lost on some people. There's a difference between training and inference. Training is, is very computationally intensive. It can take a long time. It's very energetically intensive. But once it's trained, these models are actually very fast and, and they're pretty lightweight. So you can take something that might need days across five machines in the cloud to train, but it winds up being a file that's only a few megabytes and it sits on the GPU and it runs very quickly. Cool. As you thought about both this particular application and also the comment you made earlier, there's the need to have the top-notch engineers. And this is a space where the Googles of the world have regularly gobbled up as many AI researchers as they possibly can. How have you pulled off building up a team at Ocero? By looking all over and finding the smartest people we can and keeping the bar high, once you reach a certain critical mass, of really smart people. They only want to work with other smart people, and that helps you with recruiting. I think one of the challenging things has been some of these bigger companies like Facebook and, and Google essentially pay people not to work at times. They, they are paying people to publish papers, and that's fine. You know, When we interview people and, and they're looking to do more of a, a research-type job, we just tell them, you know, that's not what we do here. We build products. And I think the people that we do get realize that there are extremely hard challenges in getting products to work. And in some ways, it's a metric that you can't spin your way around. So uh, what we find, and I think actually even some of the researchers in the field are frustrated by this, is that there's this explosion of papers, but in some sense, the quality is starting to go down, and it's hard to know actually what works. When you're building a product, it's really simple. <laughs> it's like, does it work you know or not? what works. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I think when you get people who are in some sense skeptical of what's out there, but they know that they have what it takes, and you get a, a critical mass of those people together, then it starts to feed on itself. Yeah, that's not just this field. A number of uh, people in the pharmaceutical industry have commented that you know many of the research papers don't have findings that they can reproduce mm -hmm. later on, and they have to have this friction of frontier sort of science work with actually, let's build a product. Mm -hmm. So as you think about moving from the warehouse piece picking, what do you see as the future of Ocera? How are you going to define the next industry or spaces to go into? Wow, that's a big question. I think we spend a lot of our time focusing on the next you know, six months, 12 months, 18 months. Long term, again, one of the reasons why we knew we wanted to do this as a software company is that the hardware is changing so rapidly, and part of that is enabled by new algorithms. So if you look at the robots that we're building today, they're essentially repurposed from the automobile industry, where you had to build an extremely stiff robot so that you could know if I put exactly this many amps of current into this motor, then the arm will move by exactly this many millimeters. If you think about how you control your hand, it doesn't work that way. So you look at a bottle, you don't know how far away it is, you just start reaching for it. You do successive approximation and you eventually grab it. Once we have machine learning models that are powerful enough that we can do this very quickly and learn to control any robot, the kinds of robots that we can build will change a lot. Um, we'll be able to build much cheaper robots, probably special purpose robots. I think some of the listeners might be immediately imagining humanoid robots, but that's not necessarily the way you would build a robot if you could build any robot, right? It's the sort of washing machine versus dishwashing humanoid sort of analogy. But as you think long-term about what are some of the kinds of tasks you could do or products you could build, I think one of the last sort of very interesting proprietary sources of knowledge in the world are basically in people's heads. The information for how you even make an electronic device isn't necessarily, strictly speaking, in the schematics for that. So if you look at what Foxconn workers do, for instance, oftentimes they're using components that aren't quite to spec. They're kind of force-fitting things in there. That's Pugliani's paradox. There's these things that we do that are not written down. So a lot of that knowledge is in people's heads. 
And if you could design a software platform that can control robots and can work across these domains, you know, starting with piece picking, but then maybe moving into some sort of simple manufacturing and then eventually into much more precise manufacturing, you can become a manufacturing company. There's a, there's a wide range of possibilities. We're probably just going to follow sort of market dynamics and listen to our customers in the beginning. You mentioned Pollyanni's uh, paradox. You know, moving from stuff that you could codify into this tacit knowledge base mm-hmm. and the sort of the the ability of technology to start moving into that area. You've been both an investor in the space, now an entrepreneur. Do you anticipate a like a, a race to you know hit all these different places where we have tacit knowledge? Hmm. Um, I don't know. I go back and forth on this issue. I think one of the things we can expect is we will continue to find, there'll be another deep learning, essentially. It won't be deep learning, it'll be something else. And that will change, for instance, the value of some of the data that exists um, in these domains. You could see, for instance, a company who accumulates a ton of data in, in the piece-picking field as having a competitive advantage, and then one day we figure out what it is that monkeys are born with that lets them immediately start climbing trees, and all of a sudden piece-picking becomes easy, and, and then something else becomes difficult. So it's really hard to predict just because there's so much left to learn in, in machine learning. One way that I try to approach this problem is I just look around at what people are doing. And I think, you know, people are supercomputers. Every, every person is basically a supercomputer. So anytime you see a person doing something that, for instance, a seven-year-old could do, that's probably a good sign that that thing will be automated and that that person will be freed up to do something else. The thing I can be sure of is that you will definitely see a race to automate those kinds of tasks and that people will be freed up to do more interesting, hopefully, okay. more complex tasks. So to create the new work. So I guess this kind of leads into our, our last sort of macro question is people look out to the future and they're worried about that there won't be any jobs. Once we have the AI-powered robots that can do everything, there won't be any need for us humans to be involved anymore. Do you see that as the future or is it one that uh, you're more optimistic that there will always be something else that sits beside it? I'm optimistic. I think we have a lot of choices to make. We can decide what kind of future we build. We could build a really terrible future. We could build a fantastic future. It's up to us. I'm an optimist, though. I, I think that we will, and already have, continued to invent extremely interesting things like podcasts and Instagram and, and things that we never could have even considered to be work until we invented them. And at the same time, the universe is huge. There's so many things. I mean, let's, let's get to Mars. Let's get to the moon. Let's do those kinds of things. I think there's plenty of work to be done. Yeah, so many opportunities there. All right, so now let's bring it down to a more tactical level. For an entrepreneur that is coming into the machine learning space more broadly, do you have a single biggest piece of advice that you would give to them? I would say stay focused on your customer and the problem and don't be wedded to any particular technique. So it's nice to come in with some priors, whether it's technical expertise or a hypothesis about what technique it will take to make it work. But you should remain flexible because you're going to learn a lot about your problem as soon as you get started working on it. And you're going to want to build the simplest system you can that gets the job done. So don't overkill. What about for an MBA student that's just graduating? I would say probably don't start the company right away unless it's a field that you've already been working in. You need to come to the problem with something, either either knowledge of the problem itself from working in the industry or knowledge of what you think the solution is. So I think uh, getting exposure to the kinds of problems uh, that you're going to face is, is a good first step. We appreciate Derek Pridmore, CEO and co-founder of Ocera, for joining us today to talk about artificial intelligence and its intersection with robotics. Thank you, Derek. Thanks for having me in. And thanks to all of you for listening in.